Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Keith Weilu, a professor and historian at Princeton. Keith's research straddles history and health policy, touching on drugs and drug policy, the politics of race and health, and much more. Today, we're going to talk about Keith's new book, Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette, which was published by the University of Chicago Press. The book tells the untold story of the menthol cigarette and its ties to racism in America. Well, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I I sort of want to start with a rather big question. Earlier this year, the FDA announced that it was going to work toward banning menthol cigarettes. Do you think they should do that? Yes, I do think the FDA should follow through on the proposed ban. It's really been a long time coming. And this would be, by some estimates, the fourth time that menthol cigarettes came close to being banned. The first near-death experience for menthols was back in 2009 when President Obama signed the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act into law. And what that did was banned uh, flavored cigarettes, or what was called characterizing flavors used in cigarettes as illegitimate enticements to youth. And until that moment, surprisingly, the FDA had no authority over tobacco products at all. And what that legislation also did was give FDA authority over these products. But the menthols were exempted from that ban for reasons I describe in the book. Um, But Congress did, as I say, hand authority to FDA to decide the fate of menthols. And then the second near-death experience came a couple years later when FDA ruled in favor of uh, a ban only to be stymied in the courts by the industry. And then almost a decade went by uh, after, at which point um, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner in the Trump administration, announced that the FDA was going to go forward with the ban, a third near-death experience that was averted by political opposition, this time from key senators in tobacco-growing states like North Carolina. So this, you know, by some counts, is the fourth time around. Um, it's familiar territory, historically speaking. It's been a long time coming. And yes, I do think that the argument is still a strong one. Uh, but what the book does is it shows how there's an even deeper and troubling history to how menthol became so embedded in smoking habits uh, over the course of the 20th century. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that more because, you know, the menthol cigarette, I had no idea it had such ties. I mean, I know today your book says 85% of black smokers use menthol cigarettes compared to only 29% of whites. And your book sort of delves deep into the heart of the tobacco industry to expose the forces at work behind this. So can you just tell me more? Yeah, how this preference came about is, as you say, the story of the book, and it dates back, I can actually put a year on it, like 1964. That's the moment when the makers of Cool decided to aggressively push into advertising in black periodicals. Uh, But there is also, as always, a backstory. Uh, So the first chapters in Menthol's history have very little to do with race and African-American-themed marketing, but they have a lot to do with the promise of menthol smoking as therapeutic. It's a false promise, I might add. The idea was that menthol opened the airways. It doesn't. 
soothe the throat. It didn't. And was the perfect cigarette for cough and cold season or a break, break from regular cigarette smoking. The selling of menthols hinged on this health promise from the 1920s through the 1950s and boomed actually after studies linking smoking with cancer, heart disease, and other ailments. So the industry sold menthol through this therapeutic messaging. 64 was the year of the Surgeon General's report on smoking, causing extraordinary turmoil in smoking markets. And by then, new brands like Salem were being pitched, uh, pitching menthol to youth. And so 64 is this year of real dramatic um, turmoil in the market, but also increasingly aggressive regulations against the industry, pushing back against youth marketing. And it's at this moment when the industry was losing youth markets that Cool rebranded in the same way that Marlboro did in the 1950s to become a more male, masculine, white smoker brand um, and began to push aggressively into inner cities at a time when cities themselves were changing. And so manufacturers began through the 1960s to write about going after what one called poverty markets. And so the book really pulls back the curtain on the ways in which this particular strategy was crafted and executed to devastating effect. I'm curious, you know, because in today's society, we're often under the influence of persuasion, even deceit when it comes to the products that we purchase, whether it's a cigarette or food or fashion or skincare. So I'm curious what makes this story different. Well, what makes menthol flavored cigarettes different is, I would say, three things. Unlike the history of other products, the lawsuits brought by the states, attorneys generals, and the Department of Justice in the late 1990s, it's a master settlement agreement against the tobacco industry, means that millions and millions of documents in this case became available for scrutiny. So unlike other industries, what you have is this rich and amazing trove of industry studies, marketing plans, psychological, what we call psychographic studies of smoker beliefs about health and anxiety, all becoming available, allowing you to tell a unique backstory to how markets get made. And so we have the ability to push, pull back the curtain to see how these products find the homes uh, where they do. The second thing is that the story of the cigarette and the menthol cigarette is unique because it's uh, it's the, the marketing push, its appeal rises precisely as health risks of smoking become increasingly clear. So it's a product that um, where other scholars have focused on industry's denial of the connections between smoking and cancer, let's say starting in the 50s, the history of menthol actually, ex- the story of menthol actually explains how the industry understood the rising disease connection and then saw an opportunity to market menthols because of the perception of their therapeutic appeal as a safe cigarette, which it is not. So it's a it's a weird kind of story about how a brand rises as the illness, as the disease threat of, of smoking rises as well. 
And the third thing is that, you know, the history of menthol is a story of a uniquely powerful industry, which is buoyed not just by menthol, but the addictive substance, nicotine, that keeps smokers coming back for more. So the story is not only one of shrewd marketing persuasion, but also of deception. Um, sometimes the industry uses the word exploitation, addiction, and the uses of science of psychology to learn how to leverage a health crisis uh, to create a market. Yeah, I'm curious what uh, led you to pursue a book about the menthol cigarette. I know your last book was on the history of pain. And I'm just curious, had you found something along the way that sort of drew you into, you know, I really need to explore this much more deeply? (laughs) Yeah. So I I am... um, at base, a historian of medicine, and often people in my field study the role of science in shaping medical interventions to improve health. In the history of menthol, you have a perverse feature of this story, the idea that an industry is offering a therapeutic or a balm for a product that is increasingly known to have devastating effects on the body. It's a very successful messaging strategy. At first, it's explicit, and then it becomes increasingly implicit. So it's a way, you might say, as as a historian of health and medicine, to study the forces producing illness and the forces producing a greater amount of disease over the course of the 20th and 21st century. I also came to this book because I write and teach about drug policy in the U.S., having done this, as you mentioned, the previous book on pain and how opioids became the answer for chronic pain. Yeah. Um, and for a decade, I've been sort of teaching courses on race, drugs, and drug policy. And the story of tobacco is inevitably part of, in fact, a central part of the story of um of drugs and drug consumption over the course of the 20th century. Can I ask you something off script? Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because I feel like when it comes to like the U S is so quick to prescribe medicine for, it seems everything. And even what you're saying, you know, the menthol cigarette being like a bomb to help you. Why is it that there's no messaging on, you know, good health and nutrition? I mean, I'm not <laughs> saying there's none of that, but it, it feels like that's never a focus. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I agree. In fact, um, (laughs) you know, I once gave a talk on this and somebody says, you know, why, why, why don't we have a machinery to actually use all of these, this energy of psychological studies to teach people how to eat better and live better. And, and I think, you know, we're such a consumer oriented society that we offload responsibilities for those things to the private sector. And then we deal with the damage uh, that's created in the aftermath. I mean, sadly, that's the kind of society uh, we are. It's true. I mean, I know we started off the conversation a little bit this way with policy implications. Uh, Are there more that you would add from the book? Well, most immediately, I I do think that uh, the book has bearing on the question of whether the menthol cigarette should be banned. And that's not just a question at the FDA. It's also a question now at the center of city politics and state politics. San Jose recently became the largest city to ban menthol sales uh, in the country. What I'd say is that the book also addresses other kinds of questions like, do bans work? Uh, It turns out that there's a history in the uh, the history of tobacco uh, that speaks to this. Uh, there's a long history of banning billboards, banning 
uh, tobacco billboards, banning TV and radio ads, uh, banning indoor smoking, uh, smoking on airplanes, restricting the industry from sending free cigarettes to troops overseas. And if you want to understand what the implications of a menthol ban would do, uh, there is much to learn uh, by looking at this book. Definitely. You know, I always ask my guests about the process of writing a book, and I'm just curious sort of how long it took you to put this together, and what was the hardest section for you to write? So I would say it took about, it's hard to estimate, I maybe started thinking about it many, many years ago, but about five years ago, I began working on it in earnest, working through the tobacco archives um, to see whether amid the you know 14 million plus documents, there was enough of a story to tell, and there was. I'd say the the hardest chapter or most the most interesting chapter to write was the was the conclusion because I was writing it uh in 2000 uh, in 2020 uh amidst the emergence of covid and the murder of George Floyd um in which um that that provoked me to think about how the story of menthol was connected to those. Uh, there are these stunning three tragedies, the death by a policeman's violence that produced this, you know, rallying cry, I can't breathe, disproportionate cries of I can't breathe coming from people, of, uh, uh, populations of color in cities because of COVID. And then you have, you know, the inevitable end result of much smoking, which is um, de- the decimation of the lungs. I can't breathe. And so it provoked me to kind of think about, you know, what these three stories, these assaults on Black people's lives and breathing, how they converge um, and how they really comment on systemic long-term challenges that confront uh, the Black community along different timelines, right? Uh, And as a result of different agents, uh, police on the one hand, a virus on the other hand, um, racial segregation, uh, residential racial segregation that that aggravates uh, COVID's um, impact on Black communities, and then the aggressive push by an industry over multiple decades. And so that conclusion, the sort of which is titled, subtitled, The Long Road to I Can't Breathe, is what was both um, most surprising to me uh, because it was provoked by the circumstances, but in some ways, um, the most telling of chapters. Yeah, that's really poignant. I'm curious who you hope will read this book. Who, do you have a target audience in mind? I'd say the book is a general audience book. Uh, I think anyone who wants to know how markets are made and sustained or wants to look behind the curtain to see how influence works. Um, it's kind of a precursor to our own era of online marketing and manipulation and its consequences. Um, but it's also, you know, has specific interest for people in law, policy, health, as well as race and ethnicity studies or black studies. Um, I like to say that one surprising thing about the industry was um, that they were doing Black studies, gender studies, studies of masculinity, actually before uh, it was being done in the academy. That is to say, they understood that like gender anxiety about cancer was really central to understanding how some people were moving, how how uh, how women were uh, gravitating towards menthol smoking in the case of Salem, and why men 
were at first resistant to menthol smoking because they saw it as a kind of sissy cigarette. So they were doing kind of gender studies. They were doing the history, you know, sexuality studies and certainly black studies to try to figure out ways in which to embed these practices um, in communities, uh, in consumer uh, cultures and to create markets. And so anyone who's interested in policy, law, um, business, or just America in our time, I think will find something useful in this book. Yeah, definitely. Well, Keith, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to touch upon that we didn't get to today? No, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book. Of course. And when does the book publish? Which day? I think it's out right now. Oh, today. Okay. So Pushing Cool is available now through Chicago University Press, Amazon, and wherever else you find books. Thanks again for joining us, Keith. Thank you, Rose. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNote, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. The show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber, and we want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.